Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. Here today with Adam Rutherford. Adam uh, is the author of How to Argue with a Racist. That's his latest book. Adam's um, trained as, well, I look at his biographies, but I think he's trained as like a proper research scientist uh, in, in genetics at University College London and has a proper PhD. And then he worked for 10 years at Nature as a science communicator. But uh, I, I feel like at some point, um, Adam, it's like you decided to leave the, the, the tea party and go down to the bar, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like he was like, you know what, I'm going to, it's nice here, but I'm going to just go brawl with people who believe in hype and pseudoscience for the rest of my career. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. Um, and he is a uh, really uh, well-loved and one might even say pugnacious uh, character on social media. And does uh, a broadcaster of BBC radio and television and so on. So obviously you can see I'm very excited to have him here today to talk about this new book. It's terrific, Adam. Thank you. I was really enjoying that introduction. I think you hit, <laughs> hit quite a few of my... Uh, you know, important buttons there. <laughs> well, let me just let me just uh, say straight up the top because uh, I, I want to talk about the substance, but a little advertisement for the book, which I don't have to do. But uh, what I loved about it is uh, you have the knack, and it's so hard, of making the science accessible without dumbing it down um, and putting it in context. And I can see the context is really important to me, but. Um, you know, I think most people in the field don't need to be convinced that science doesn't support uh, stereotypes or racist tropes and so on. And more importantly, that the really, I think the fundamental thing is the racist contention that one group is smarter, more capable, more worthy than any other is not supported by the science. But this is a book that hands you examples and explanations and puts it at your fingertips because it can be hard to explain. Yeah, I mean, so I, I guess one of the reasons I came down from the gods to to brawl in bars, uh, <laughs> to, to extend your metaphor, is is because, you know, I, I occupy this sort of middle ground. I I, I am, I, you know, I consider myself a scientist. Um, I still have a position at UCL. I I am involved in research, but I haven't done bench work for many years. And I did go through this transition of being, you know, g getting as far away from research as I could and becoming much more of a journalist, but but just inevitably being drawn back to to the bench and spending as much time with scientists uh, as, as I can. But the, the sort of motivation for writing this particular book was that there is this enormous disconnect uh, as a as a as a sort of like a public communicator, as a science communicator whose focus is on genetics and human evolution and human variation and, and the, the you know the genome, the ocean from which um, human variation is is drawn. There is this disconnect. Things about ideas about race that are completely non-controversial within the academy amongst geneticists all around the world remain um, the, the the source of confusion and stereotypes and myths um, in in the real world. And I felt, you know, to to a certain extent, that's that's on me, right, or or us. As a, as a community of people who are scientifically literate specifically about genetics and evolution, 
who haven't managed to convey these ideas accurately. And so the, the, this is sort of coupled with, um, all of my career, I have wanted to em- embrace the complexity of, of the stories of science, which is counter to the human experience. It's counter to our, our, our desires for narrative satisfaction and, you know, nice, neat stories with beginnings, middles and ends, because that's not what science delves in. So, so it's nice to hear you say that, that I, you know, I sort of revel in the, in the complexity because that is the strength of, 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 of science. Well, uh, yeah, it, it's one of the things that's really frustrating is the pseudoscientists and the racists and the people that, that like they have these simple stories. It's like the reverse of Ocam's razor, right? Like it's like their stories are simple. And I feel like when somebody asks me, well, is this true? And I'm like, it always starts by me saying, well, it's really very complicated. That's <laughs> yeah, like that. always my first statement. And I'm like, damn. You know, because it, it's, um, you, you, it, what makes it difficult is it is always very complicated, the truth. Yeah. Well, if there's a, you know, if there, if there is a mission statement for, for my career, it is, it is to encourage people to, to revel in the complexity and embrace it and, and, and not look for straightforward answers and not look for def- definitive stories. Um, so you are right. The, the, the appeal to, simple narratives or or things that feel experientially or intuitively correct and they relate very specifically to the to the stereotypes that some of the some of which i address in the book so things like you know sport is is an area which i i i'm i'm really into my sports but i recognize that not everyone is and i had to fight to include this this chapter the chapter on sport and race partly because not just because i'm interested in it but i think that this is the arena this is one of the significant arenas in which people see people from around the world um at at extremes of ability um in elite physical pursuits and because there are racialized disparities in successes in sports that we see this becomes the fuel for the what what are effectively racist tropes about the underlying biology behind them so you know the obvious ones are things like the 100 meters in the olympics hasn't had a white man in the final since 1980 when and that was a year that the usa were boycotting because it was in moscow so you go well you know that that looks like a data set that looks like a reinforcement of a of a stereotype that i might already hold which is that black people or people descended from uh, the enslaved are somehow biologically predisposed to being a athletic and be um, athletic at uh, explosive energy sports such as short distance running or basketball right and you go well yeah you know the nba has been dominated by african americans now for 30 years and the ratio stayed approximately the same around about 75 to 80 percent so surely that is a good data set on which to base this 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 idea and then there's, you know, there's an extension of that, which is it was the act of slavery. It was transatlantic slavery, which actually bred this physicality into um, the descendants of the enslaved. And that is why that advantage is there. So, you get, you know, you say that to someone who isn't a racist, who is, who is, you know, my uncle or someone who's interested in sports and 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 doesn't feel like they have a bigoted bone in, in their body. But the truth of the matter is that there's so many things wrong with the, that stereotype, that that idea from a scientific, from a biological point of view, that it does take effort to un, unpick them. 
Yeah, would, yeah. Would... I, I mean, I think the the most fundamental confusion for me, and the thing I find very hard to address, and you do a lot of that in this book, is, you know, <laughs> so the the proper statement to make is uh, race is a social construct, right? Uh, and yeah. you call that glib, which I really appreciated because when you say that to people, they're like, you're asking me to not look at, not to, to not believe my eyes. Yeah. Because I can see skin color. I can see racial, you know, I can identify who's black in this room, right? Um, yeah. so it's not as simple as that. And yet, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you make them understand that the stereotypes aren't true without simply telling them you're a fool for believing the evidence of your own eyes. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it, tempting though that is, I think we both know that um, <laughs> people never win arguments by pointing out how idiotic the, the other person's <laughs> argument is. So, um, and yet we try. And yet we try because it is so tempting. Yes. Um, but we must fight against that urge. Um, so the, again, there's a lot to unpick in in, in what you just said because. Uh, the first chapter is about the history of race and the idea that, which is not controversial in history, um, that the racial, the, the, the racialization, the racial categorizations that we use today that are all familiar to us are modern inventions. They're inventions which are coincident with the European colonialist project. Um, from the 17th century on, and and this is very well documented and very well understood. Yeah, there's a great there's a great quote from the anthropologist I like, Jonathan Marks, who talks about um, that he feels as an anthropologist the same confusion he felt as a Jew when he met Bible thumpers who took the book literally. He said, "We Jews had written it and we didn't take it that seriously." He goes, "I have the same sense of deja vu with race. Like anthropologists invented it and we don't even believe in it." <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't come across that, but that's perfect. Yeah, that's so perfect. Yeah. Uh, but but it, it is. It seems like you know. It seems so obvious that people have different skin color, and it's the first thing that you see when you see anyone. You can identify what pigmentation they they have. But from a historical point of view, it is only in the 17th century onwards that this becomes the primary determinant of the categorization of people, specifically for the the othering of other people and, and therefore the subjugation of, of other people through there are references to skin color as far back as well, the oldest text in Western canon, which is the Iliad and the Odyssey. And they're very specific and they're, you know, they, they, they're absolutely in there. This is, this is not a colorblind society. Um, the, the, that's the introduction of the word Aethiops, which is used in the Iliad, which is the, from which we derive Ethiopian. And that literally translates as blackened face. Right. But the, the, the point is that it's only during the European colonial period that pigmentation becomes the primary and initial determinant of categorization. Back in ancient Greece and Rome and other, other parts of the world, things like religion and culture and language and geography, um, all of those are far more significant in the othering of people that you wish to interact with. And by interact, I include subjugate or enslave and so for the majority of human history the categories the categories that we use today are, are not the ones that people have been using for for literally thousands of years and and yet 
whilst that is uncontroversial in history, I think to a lot of people who, that to hear that is like, well, wow, that's really because it seems so obvious. But it just shows how ephemeral these racial categorizations are. And, and they are invented. I mean, they, they are, we, we know this because we, because they're written by the masters of, of Western philosophy in, in this time and science as well. The prime example being Linnaeus. Um, so Linnaeus, who is the, 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 the first, I guess the, the, the father of biology as we know it today and the arch taxonomist who designs the system that we still use to this day. So genus and species in Latin. And he is the first person to try and categorize humans in, in using his, um, his method. And he does it with, he has Homo sapiens and then subspecies or subgroups, which are racially categorized as Asiaticus with yellow skin and black hair, meaning East Asians, Americanus with red skin and black hair, meaning indigenous people of North America, Africanus or Afa, meaning sub-Saharan African people, and they have shiny black skin and tight curly black hair, and Europaeus, who have pale skin, are elegant and beautiful, and have <laughs> blue eyes and, and blonde hair. So the 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 initial categorizations are based on a phenotype based on a physical characteristic even though they're wildly inaccurate and we can talk about skin color variation in a minute maybe but right after those categorizations are a lot of value judgments so it says you know um uh, the americanus the indigenous people of america are stubborn and ruled by customs asiaticus so east east asians are um I can't remember the exact terms now, but, um, ruled by, um, uh, by law and the Africanus or Afa are capricious and, and ruled by caprice and lustful. And so you've got all of these, you know, you've got immediately got this fusion of sort of science, although it's pseudoscience really being marshaled into a political ideology in order to justify the othering of these people. And it's not just classification, it's hierarchical. Because in all cases, not just Linnaeus, in all cases where this sort of taxonomy is employed, see if you can guess who comes top of the pile. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the people doing the subjugation, right? The what is white Europeans. Now, again, this stuff is just not controversial in history. It's not, I don't think a lot of my colleagues in genetics necessarily know this, but, but w- when you spell it out like that, they you know, they, 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 they nod and say, yeah, that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's undeniable. Right, right. I mean, it's, 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 it's factual and based in the texts which form much of the canon of Western thought, including and especially science. So wait, let's, let's, Talk a little bit about what you use as examples, first skin color and then athleticism. And I felt it was interesting because you're working on two, two points at once. Uh, one is what you're saying here, which I think is undeniable, which is simply that the Venn diagram of what we call race and what we find in genes do not overlay very well. You know, obviously, there's some connection. And I say, obviously, as a clinician, right? So uh, we don't do it sure. that way anymore. But yes, if you were trying to optimize finding people with a sickle cell anemia carrier status, and you had limited number of tests, 
uh, using darker skinned people would be uh, an effective way. The same way if you wanted to find people with Marfan syndrome and so you put a heart height requirement in, it would enrich your sample, right? Like, yeah, there's Agreed. some, something overlap, but it's a bad proxy. Race is a bad proxy for genes. I think we could agree on that. And there's a, a lot in the book that takes it that way. And then at the same time, separate lines of argument uh, about athleticism, about when you get to it, intelligence, that uh, in addition to that, even if you're looking at populations rather than race, there's very limited information backing up a lot of the myths that we believe about population groups. So, Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I mean... I, th I think one of the things that I try to stress in this book is, is that people are different. And that is obviously and visually true and, and intuitively and experientially true. And I think some, sometimes in the past, the mistake that it, it has been a mistake made by well-intentioned people to take a sort of blank slate approach and to say, well, th these, the, the differences that we see are skin deep, which I think is, is, is true when it comes to pigmentation, but that that extends to all, all characteristics of, of the differences that we see around the world. Now that I think is much more difficult to support from a genetic point of view, because people are different from around the world. And many of those differences can be accounted for by regional adaptations. So the differences that we see in um, so particularly in things like diet and disease resistance, and you just mentioned sickle cell, um, we do see very specific regional distributions of genes associated with, with sickle cell. And the reason for that is because uh, sickle cell trait, which is having one copy of the disease gene, is protective against malaria infection. Having two copies of the disease um, uh, beta globin gene means that you have sickle cell anemia, which is, you know, a pr pretty bad disease. But what the, the, the areas that you see the distribution of sickle cell around the world perfectly match the distribution of, of endemic malaria. And that there is a huge belt of, of uh, endemic malaria zone across Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, but it's not the totality of Africa. Um, and you also see endemic, um, uh, malaria and subsequent sickle cell trait and sickle cell anemia in uh, South America, Northern South America, also in Greece, also in India. Um, and so the notion that, that there is, this is a racialized disease, uh, or a disease that is specific to a race, in this case, uh, people recently descended from, uh, uh, populations in Africa is partially true, um, but not completely true. And it's, it's, it's the same for any disease because there are no racially specific disease. You are, you, the way you phrased that was exactly, exactly correct. The frequency of sickle cell trait and sickle cell disease in African Americans is higher than in European descended Americans. But the majority of African Americans don't have sickle cell or sickle cell trait, just as the majority of people around the world who haven't, uh, whose ancestors weren't, uh, uh um, in malarial zones also don't have sickle cell trait. So, so that's, that's one example of how one can racialize a disease. And yet it is so common, uh, particularly in the US to think of sickle cell as a black disease. There are no black diseases. No. And, and, and particularly to make generalizations about the genetics of African Americans is really the, 
maybe the most common and also the most troubling and ridiculous group that you could try to look at as a genetic isolate. Because if there's ever a group that isn't a genetic isolate, it's African-Americans. There's yeah. uh, there's so many historical reasons for this. Yeah, which we're only just beginning to unpick. But the, the I mean, the most obvious reason for this is that this is a very unusual grouping of people because they have been forcibly um, moved. Uh, you know, and my, migration is is normal in 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 human evolution, human history. But the recent and massive migration, forced migration of people as a result of transatlantic slavery into the Americas, North and South, primarily from five or six countries on the west coast of of Africa over a very short period of time, coupled with some e- extremely um, artificial selective selection mechanisms, such as um, high frequencies of um, of rape of uh, African American women by European descended um, slave owners, coupled with a much higher death rate in African men in the early days of slavery due to working in in harsh environments. So, for for example, Senegalese men who were who were experts in rice agriculture, being forced to work to cultivate rice in the south. Um, in extremely harsh conditions, which then become, because they're clearing forests, become endemic malarial zones. So huge, huge disproportionate death rates amongst men compared to women, uh, in that case. I, and I so re- you see, so go on. I, I, I was just reading this morning a new article from, I don't know if it's new. It was new to me. I was just reading it, uh, from the a 23andMe data yeah. set, uh, that showed that in certain areas, the, descendants of African slaves, twice as much DNA from their female ancestors, yeah. African ancestors, than their male African ancestors, which is just an, an incredible diff- difference, right? Showing yeah. um, how m- much of that population is descended from uh, enslaved women, but not from enslaved men. Yeah, I mean, it, it is... In some ways, it is a recapitulation of the history that we actually know that race historians and historians of, of transatlantic slavery know. It's what genetics can do is add a layer and a sort of new, almost a numerical layer on top of that. We can account, um, but we can account for these sort of historical phenomena by, by layering genetics on top of that and this is your this this this, the paper i think you're referring to came out i think only in july or or august and it's a it's a stunning piece of work but i mean this this part of the conversation was prompted by you saying how or or alluding to how uh, incoherent african-american is from a purely genetic point of view and that is absolutely true for so many reasons not least that there is more genetic diversity within Africa than in the rest of the world, and that these are people taken from five different countries, so, so, so you know, wildly different uh, uh, genomically uh, in their in their ancestral origins, and then they get forcibly mixed together. No one is separated by country of origin. Then on top of that, and then moved around the country as as they are traded during chattel slavery, um, and then on top of that, you've got these wildly disproportionate. Uh, 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 um, representation of female DNA compared to male DNA that you just you just mentioned, and so to 
African-American is a cultural identity and a really significant and important cultural identity. And, you know, one that really exemplifies the thing that we said 20 minutes ago, which is that race is a social construct to deny African-Americanism as a as a social grouping would be foolish and, and ridiculous. But it doesn't make a great deal of sense from a genetic point of view coupled with the fact that almost all African-Americans descended from the enslaved have a significant proportion of European DNA in their genomes and vice versa. And again, this is a thing that I think that a lot of a lot of white Americans don't realize that because of the, the because of how family trees actually work and because of the history of of slavery in the US, most people, most white Americans whose roots can be traced more than into the, you know, into the 19th century and beyond have black ancestors. And, and that's just a sort of statement of fact, which is unequivocal. Um, and we can show that in, in DNA now. Yeah, yeah. Hear that, Jim Watson? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I think we're kind of naturally coming around. So uh, this book, um, by accident, has the most incredible timing in the world. Um, yeah. uh, so... Adam was supposed to be here, and I think it was in April when the book was originally supposed to be published in the United States. And then it got COVIDed, and you got COVIDed, right? Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm sorry, and 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 none of these none of these events could have been foreseen, and I'm I'm damn sure they weren't anything you wished for. But uh, the series of events, uh, the pandemic, and then George Floyd's public execution have set the stage for this incredible moment in time for you to be having this discussion, which must be a really charged and interesting uh, experience for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, weird. Um, and obviously I'm pleased that it is, it, it is, is, is selling so well and is part of a, a, a set of books um, that have been written in the last few years about race all of them to a certain degree reflecting the changing political atmosphere here in the UK, which I suppose most, most obviously represented by Brexit and the rise of populism and nationalism and, and in the US, similar sorts of things, but most, most clearly represented by the election of, of Donald Trump. Um, so in, in a sense, you know, there was a sort of inevitability that the conversation was steering me in this direction. I'd written an earlier book in 2016 called A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, which was a much sort of broader picture of what genetics can tell us about history. But there was a chapter in there about race and about eugenics, which is a related concept. Um, I, I So the, the, the genesis of this particular book, How to Argue with the Racist, was really in you know conversations with my editor saying i think you need to write something really specific and targeted and pugnacious because it's a short book it's only 45,000 words yeah but really specifically about about race as a, as a toolkit that's what my that's what she said and i and i thought yeah this is this is a good idea and then yeah and then 2020 happened um and the world turned upside down um i i'm going to take a minor issue with what you said about what none of this could have been predicted well in a sense, you're absolutely, I don't think anyone predicted how bad it was going to be, but I think it, we all knew that a pandemic was coming again. Um, it's just, I don't think we, and anyone anticipated quite how bad it was going to be this time round. But the second thing is, and, and this is a, you know, this is a hard thing to say. Um, 
the American version has a new introduction, which is in reference to Black Lives Matters and George Floyd and, and also COVID, the racialization of COVID. And one of the things that I was, as I was writing that, which was back in, well, it was actually in July, was actually the, the murder of George Floyd. It, 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 it's not, it's not inevitable is not the right word, but it is entirely in keeping with this, with, with the pattern of black men being killed by police in in America that dates back well at, at least to 1968 with the riots that followed the the murder of Martin Luther King oh. and way back well to, well well forever forever no the the, the murder the back, yeah. of a black man by law enforcement is the most predictable thing it seems to happen at depressingly regular intervals but what was stunning wasn't the act, but the response, because yeah. it has happened so many times before. And yet, somehow in this moment, whether it was the publicness of it, something about the, the just blankness on this man's face, like mm. the expectation that this would all just occur, and it would have no consequences. Maybe it's I, people being bored and trapped in and having no jobs to go to Monday morning, who knows what, what combination of things but the the reaction amongst all people i mean obviously amongst black people but also among white people sort of stepping Mm -hmm. up and saying like i'm so fucking sick of this happening Mm -hmm. um was incredible and to me the international reaction because i american and i had this bias that it was a very american problem very american thing but you know it provoked a reaction all over the world and uh that I think would have been hard to foresee. Um, Agreed. And I do yeah. think so. You know, Will Smith had this famous remark where uh, uh, he said racism, someone said racism is get, getting worse. And he said, racism isn't getting worse. It's getting filmed. And, <laughs> and obviously there's some great truth to that. But um, yeah, I wanted I to mean, bring that up. In, like, in is the... it, is it, is it getting a little bit worse? Like, like, you know, I know we all can't look into people's hearts, but, do you see uh, a rise in sort of race-based policy language? Like, do you do you see it as as a moment in time where it's really risen up? I I I am an optimist, and I think the data is very difficult to to gather on this. We have some data about how racist Britain is as a country. Um, and, and over time, but it it sort of dates back to 1983, and what we see is that by one metric in the UK, which is, you can't ask people whether they're racist or not, because they won't answer even, even if it's anonymous, they won't answer honestly. So we ask questions in in public surveys, such as if your son or daughter was in a long-term relationship with a, um, with a black person, would, would that, how unhappy would you be? Right. Um, and in 1983, when that question was first asked, the number comes out as about something like 42% of people would be seriously unhappy if their son or daughter was in a relationship with a black man or, or woman. Right. When that question was asked in 2017, the numbers dropped to something like 15%. So by that one metric, we are less racist than we were in 1983. But in 2017, that's the first year they asked the same question, but instead of saying a black man, they say a Muslim, and the number's like 40% again. Mm. So the bigotry is permanent, but the spe- specifics and the racialized specifics of, of, of the bigotry seem to be 
it seem, seem to, you know, seem to be ephemeral or, or, or temporary based. And so in a sense, I, th- I mean, that, that is progress of a sort. It, it's not much use if you're a Muslim and, and it's of limited use of it's if, if you're a, a black man in, in the UK. But I suppose, I think, I think you've identified, I think that Will Smith quote and what you've identified is, is right. It is the vocalization of racism and the transmission of that. I mean, I, I used a similar line in the US version of this book, which is that it, the revolution wasn't televised. It was live streamed. <laughs> That's um, good. And, and, you know, listing, I, you know, everyone in the world now knows the name of George Floyd. And I think a lot of people knew the name of Rodney King back in, in 1992 Mm -hmm. um and that was a big deal over here uh in the uk not least because of the exposure by uh west coast hip-hop artists which were huge in the uk to people of a certain age band of which i'm right in the middle of it so when the la riots kicked off and and this is in the time of nwa and, and ice cube we were mega exposed to rodney king but you know in between them there's been Freddie Gray in Baltimore and, you know, Michael Brown was in, uh, in Ferguson and Keith Lamont Scott in North Carolina. And, you know, the, the, the list is, is, it's just, it's virtually endless. And I was sort of, I was putting it together as a litany for, for this piece just to point out. And you just, it just goes on and on. And you, and at one point I was going, well, what do I do? Is this become a list or do I just, do I select? Was this death? Was this murder by four cops before a guy who ran a red light in 1980 in, in, in Miami, Arthur McDuffie? Is that better or worse or more significant than Rodney King, who was, you know, assaulted, but not murdered in, in LA in 92 or, you know, and so on and so on. And, and it, you know, I'm yeah, yeah, sure no, it gets to, you make. can't make the list because you'd necessarily leave out somebody and, and that's it. I mean, it's crazy, right? It's just awful. You know, you have, uh, uh, white 17 year olds getting defended for walking around with, uh, semiotic automatic mm-hmm. weapons, which by the standards of America, as I understand it right now, a white 17 year old with a semi-automatic weapon is less of a existential threat than a, a black 13 year old with a bag of Skittles. So, right. um, it, it, right. it is, uh, a deeply embedded and, and very hard to deal with situation that we're having this reckoning with right now. But I, I'm, I'm wondering about something you talk about a great deal in the book, which is ancestry testing. And that's new. Yeah. What, what do you think is the relationship between ancestry testing and, and racism? Like, is there something, I know racists to use ancestry testing, and actually the book is very funny about that, right? It's very amusing about the pitfalls of trying to prove your whiteness using ancestry testing. I should let yeah. you talk about that because you're a funny subject. Well, in, in, in some ways it is, talking about white supremacists and neo-Nazis in some ways is it's like a cul-de-sac or a slight distraction from, I think, the the more significant message, which is to talk to people who aren't racists, who don't consider themselves to be racist, but are more, but are prone to talk about, you know, sporting success or Jews are good with money or, you know, long distance runnings from East, East Africa and really unpicking those sort of that cultural framework, which are actually racist ideas, but they're positive attribute racism. However, the, the, I'm not, we, you know, pe- people who follow my work know that I'm, not terribly 
enamored with uh, ancestry testing kits, the sort of 23andMe's and ancestry.com because I, well, I, I don't think, I think they sell you a, a basic deceit, which plays to uh, our desire for narrative satisfaction. Some of the things we talked about a, a minute ago, um, to try and place us in this ridiculous story that humankind is and to give us some sense of identity. And if you can do it by this mysterious and enigmatic and very persuasive um, DNA, then surely that's got more kudos and more credential than, than just, just, you know, the sense that I have blue eyes and blonde hair and therefore I'm descended from Vikings, uh, which, you know, incidentally, I get an email every single week from a white person telling me exactly that. Um, and so, <laughs> I, I have, I think they have very limited, um, uh, validity in terms of the novel information that they can, that they can convey. There are certainly cases, many cases where lost ancestry can be rediscovered using, um, direct consumer, uh, genetic testing kits or that, um, you know, like lost cousins or brothers or sisters or parents that definitely can be revealed in these sorts of studies, but those are relatively rare compared to the majority of the, you know, 30 million people or so who've taken them who come out with a map, which says, Oh yeah, I'm 20% German or 15% Swedish. Do you know, do you know what bugs me about ancestry testing? <laughs> everything? It, yeah. Everything? No, well, no, no, I mean, like, I understand if you're adopted or, you know, or for, for, for many African Americans, they can get a sense of history going back when that's been sort of expunged or, I have, there's lots of uses where I'm like, oh yeah, I get it. That's nice. But yeah, everything. So, um, what bothers me about ancestry testing is I feel like what they're selling you is the idea that they are going to take your mythology and replace it with science, yeah. right? Uh, they're going to map your storytelling onto real science. And the truth is, all they're doing is taking the science and mapping it onto the stories we already have. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. <laughs> right? So, so we already made up these categories and we say, I mean, like, 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 uh, they call yeah. it Italian, but if you went back with that same set of genes that, yes, in 1800 were more likely to show up in people who lived in Italy, where would they have been a thousand years ago, right? Like, yeah, it's very artificial. Yeah. Anyway, that's my... That's well, it completely is. And uh, the, I think that, you know, we, we've, we've already started down the route this, in this conversation of pointing out the sort of foibles of, of this technique. And I, I think more broadly, it represents... A, a principle within genetics that we've been trying to get away from for 20, 30, 40 years, which is the idea of essentialism, that there, there is something within our genes that make us very precisely within one group or one um, demographic or, or it says something very precise about ourselves. And, and it's this sort of fundamental misunderstanding of what genetics is, which is that it is probabilistic. And the fact that we have ancestors that may you may be able to co-locate specific branches of your ancestry to one small location for maybe maybe you know decades generations or even hundreds of years in in some rare cases but the fact of the matter is that uh, the, i mentioned earlier that one of the things that humans are good at is migrating well the other thing that we're good at is having sex and you combine those two things and before long your family trees all just clash and collide and uh, they become 
uh, just just hideous messes they're not trees at all they become networks and um our family trees lines of our family trees cross through multiple individuals multiple times until eventually we have this concept called the genetic isopoint which is where all lines of all family trees cross through all individuals who are alive at that time which you know is the point where i've said this literally hundreds of times in lectures every time i say it i still think to myself that doesn't sound right. That just sounds ridiculous. But it is, it is, it is true mathematically. We can demonstrate it genetically. It is just a, a fact of, of family trees. And, and, and what if you that, want to know more about it, you can read a brief history of everyone who ever lived. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it is, it, it is in there as well. Um, I, and you know, most people, I, it's, it's fun talking about it in lectures. Uh, because you can see people really sort of leaning in and concentrating as I try to explain it in, in different ways. And then the, the sort of big reveal is that it means that literally everyone in Europe or everyone with pale skin is descended from Charlemagne the Great or, or you know, just just pick a royal um, from a thousand years ago. And you are factually, actually, not conceptually, actually descended from, from these people. And that in, in genealogy circles, that's big kudos. If you can demonstrate on paper that you're descended from someone of infamy or fame, that's a big deal. But the fact is, you know, I sort of shrug my shoulders and go, well, you know, that's cool. You can show it on paper, but literally everyone in this room is, I mean, literally not, not, <laughs> not metaphorically actually as well. So well done you. So, but the white supremacists have got hold of ancestry testing as a mechanism, as a sort of ultimate mechanism for, um, for, for demonstrating this false concept of genetic essentialism and a means of demonstrating their racial purity. And one of the things I've been doing for, for years since I think I started doing this in about 2009, which is to loiter on racist websites, chat, chat rooms. Um, Stormfront is the most obvious one. It's the oldest one. It dates from the early nineties. Um, and is a white supremacist, uh, very popular, highly trafficked white supremacist website. Now, I, the reason I was loitering around these places, also 4chan and what was, what used to be 8chan was because I wanted to see what white supremacists were talking about when it came to genetics. Because, you know, we were just at that point where genetics was about to become into this sort of golden era of of being accessible to to people outside of uh, of academic genetics or outside of bioinformatics and over the years there has been a steady and huge increase in the frequency of conversations about 23andme and ancestry in these places in these white supremacist or neo-nazi strongholds on on the internet and almost all of them are simply demonstrations of the doing the test and then saying, yeah, yeah, I'm 100% North European with a bit of Swedish thrown in or a bit of Icelandic thrown in. And, and therefore I can, um, I can justify my, um, my terribly racist and awful, awful views that the reason, <laughs> the reason we can laugh about this and, and bearing in mind that laughing about this is a reflection of our privilege anyway, is that occasionally you get these these comments from people who are self-confessed self-describing neo-nazis or white supremacists who do these tests and lo and behold it shows entirely unsurprisingly to anyone who's been paying attention to genetics for the last hundred years it says you have recent ancestry from north africa or the middle east or sub-saharan africa or you have ashkenazi jewish ancestors within the last century which is something these tests can 
can show. And then gauging their reactions as their worldview is severely challenged by having ancestry from people that they hate. Now, um, some two sociologists, um, Aaron Panofsky, um, led by Aaron Panofsky a couple of years ago, documented this effect and published the paper, I think, in 2019. Um, and they categorized some more than 3,000 responses, mostly on Stormfront, I think, um, in which this is this this had happened. And you get multiple responses, but they, none of the responses are, holy shit, maybe I shouldn't be a racist anymore because it turns out that... that um, that family trees are incredibly mixed up and race is a social construct. The most popular response was, um, 23 and me, uh, it was just simply try a different company, which isn't that ridiculous. In fact, because the companies use different genetic panels and therefore you can actually get different results. Mm -hmm. The second most popular was 23 and me is run by Jews. Try a different company. The third one was 23andMe is run by Jews who deliberately plant false information to sow racial disharmony. Try a different company. They're on and to you, me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, knew, I mean, I'm not sure why that's, that's a motivation for, for anyway. Yeah. And then, and then one, one that I point out. It's what we learn it's in a, Jewish it's a specific quotes <laughs> is, is a guy who discovered he had Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. And and um and posted this to uh, Stormfront, and one of the responses was, um, "Look in the mirror. If you if you don't see a Jew, then you're okay." <laughs> and I was thinking, well, this is nuts because you just wasted 150 quid, or sorry, 100 100 dollars or whatever. If if you can just decide right. that you're not Jewish by looking in a mirror, you don't even need some guy in a white coat and and a hundred bucks. To, right. He doesn't to, even need your book. He's like, he's fit. He's, he's, he has succeeded in, in, in launching himself straight to the ultimate truth. This is all crap. This is, yeah. this is, it's just social stuff. So, you know, but it really doesn't matter what your uh. genes are. Uh, I, yes. Well, this is the unwinnableness of these arguments. And let me just put a warning out there, a PSA. Adam has spent time on Stormfront, so you don't have to. Don't try this at home, kids. It is no fun. Yeah, please don't. I know it's awful. Please don't do it. Yeah. So I, I'm going to ask you a really tough question to close out because we're sort of coming to the end of uh, time. You said something that I felt, uh, I don't know if it was in the book or in an interview or both, but you were sort of like, your feeling was uh, an anger at the, the, uh, racist community for co-opting genetic language the language of the science to try and prove and you were sort of like not not doing that with my science not with my science um yeah not going to use it to feed so i think a lot of people feel that way like we kind of feel protective of the science like somehow it's on us to fight this but how do we do that like for the my audience a lot of genetics professionals yeah. What do we do in our professional lives that's helpful? Yeah, it, it is a it is a tough question, and I think it's 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 something that scientists are not necessarily comfortable with, which is the politicization of what we do. And one of the things I argue in the book is that 
it's a, it's a noble aim that science and data should be apolitical, but it has also n- never been close to a reality. And that's the thing that I get. I get into spats with other scientists, particularly physicists, who I, who I think have a legitimate claim to being more apolitical in their data than if you deal in human variation or human evolution, understandably so. But nevertheless, as long as science, I, I, I truly believe this, as long as science is done by people, then it is inherently political. And that is fine. That is that is part of the process. Anyone who says that it, science is apolitical hasn't been paying attention for 400 years. This came up in the last week, in fact, when Scientific American, for the first time in their 185, I think it is, year history, they endorsed a presidential candidate in, in Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, my, my view when I read that is, well, quite right. You know, I mean, regardless of one's politics, um, it's a very persuasive ar- article in terms of pointing out the anti-scientific policies that have emerged during the, um, the Trump administration and the anti-science rhetoric and the anti-science structures that have been put in place during, during the last four years. So in some cases, in, in, in some regards, anything but Trump would be a pro-scientific stance. You'd have to go quite a long way down the Anything but route. Trump is tattooed on the inside of my <laughs> arm, actually. But, you know, that's <laughs> um, so, so, you know, there was, I saw that when, when they, when, when Scientific American posted this, this article and I thought, well, you know, good for you guys. Um, and, and, you know, full disclosure, I worked at Nature for 10 years, which is the same company as Scientific American and did a lot of work with Scientific American, but I haven't done since 2013. So I thought, you know, that's, that's great. But then I was looking at the comments afterwards and there were thousands of people saying, this is the death of scientific American. This is the end of yeah. science in America because for science, science is apolitical and shouldn't be. And as soon as they've done this, I'm canceling my subscription. It, you know, there's a weird number of, of uh, people with lots of digits in their Twitter handle who apparently had a scientific American <laughs> subscription that they've just canceled. We shall see. And I was like, you know, <laughs> you, you, it's it's a noble aim that science should be outside of the political sphere, but it's it's just factually incorrect. Now, I think that, you know, I, I've been hanging around scientists now for 25 years. And I think it's fair to say that many, if not most of them, just want to get on with the work. You know, these are passionate people who often have a quite narrow focus on the work that they're 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 in, involved in and that's cool and, and i respect that um i wonder whether particularly in a subject like genetics which has been co-opted in recent years to support racist ideologies just as it was in the 17th and 18th century i wonder whether given how uncontroversial views about race within human genetics are that it is a social construct and not racial differences and are, are, are not born out in in, gen, in contemporary genomics i i question whether that taking the position that this is just my work and i'm not getting involved is is acceptable a, anymore in the same way that you know the analogy is to, to climate scientists where whatever the percentage is, 98% of climate scientists believe it's anthropogenic and, and existentially threatening or, you know, wh- whatever the stat is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Climate science is healthy and robust, but we are definitely well beyond the point where this was a question, right? 
you know, climate scientists are working very hard to work out the details of the answer rather right. than what the answer is. Right. And so, so there's a, there's a genuine question that I have that many scientists have and many science journalists have. And, and it is a question. I don't know the answer to this, which is when are you an advocate? When is a scientist an advocate and not neutral? Um, and I, 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 I'm tempted to think, and I sort of argue in the book that this is the case, but, but I, I want it to be an open question that we are beyond that point for genetics and, and race. And, and then you come to a different question, which is, uh, it's exemplified best by the Angela Davis quote that I, I have near the end, which is, which is that it's in a racist society, it's not enough to be a non-racist. You have to be an anti-racist. And so th that, that is a sort of another step down this path, which is, well, what do we, what do we do? And part of that is, you know, do we have to go out there and be more aggressive or more pugnacious with the things that we know are true within the genetics community or the evolutionary biology community in order to spread the, 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 the truth of what science has demonstrated in terms of human variation and migration? Or do we, do we not do that because we don't want to be political about it or because we want to get on with our work? And I think that well, I mean, it's obvious what I think based on the way I phrase yeah. the question. Yeah, you have to speak up. I think you do. Mm -hmm. I think I think we do. And one of the reasons I think we do is because our enemies have no such compunction. They have no reservations about spreading misinformation very quickly using whatever tools are available to us. This, again, has been documented really clearly. Uh, one of the guys I quote is uh, called Jedediah Carlson, who's a geneticist. And just last week, um, he and um, Deborah Kelly published a paper in which they analyzed the way social media, particularly Twitter, um, distributed um, uh, preprints of papers that haven't been peer reviewed yet. And it wasn't specifically focused on the on extreme right wing um, people latching onto papers about human variation but they but this was part this is i think i think i'm right in saying that was the genesis of this broader paper because that jed jed has got clear data which says here's a paper from a relatively obscure small paper about um uh, uh you know human variation measuring measured on pca plots about jewish people or, or whatever you know something that would be read by about 12 people around the world in journal clubs in, in a few universities. And, and he, that, that figure was memefied and transformed and racist, racist tags were added to it. So that the legends were changed, um, to use racialized terms like quadroon and octoon or octoroon. Um, and within, you know, a few days, that that is being distributed on Stormfront on David Duke's website, and 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 you know you see the way these memes get spread. It's hard to squeeze the toothpaste back into the tube. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it is incumbent on us, the so knowledgeable that, and the powerful, to spread up to spread better arguments. So you're, there's two things I feel like you're saying there. One is to be very very careful with our language and to be very aware of the way it can be used and misused in our own work and then uh -huh. to speak up. And I, 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 I think that is a, a great message. I, uh, I, I think it's a, 
uh, a message too that's been given to those of us, and there's a lot of us who've spent some time this summer trying to um, listen to uh, African American and other people of color in our own field to talk about like how can we make it less difficult to be a minority in this field. And one of the messages that's come through uh, and been reinforced to me is like, you can't put it all on them to be the people to speak up. Uh, everybody has to speak up because yeah. it, it can be, you know, that, that they can feel like the weakest voice in the room. Like they, that just can't always come from them. And, and I think here's another example where uh, if we're better armed and better prepared to make these arguments, we should be using our voices, which yeah. let me say, I'm very grateful to have people like you, Adam, out there fighting the good fight. Well, it is a fight. And, and you know, in I, in the words of Captain America, I can do this all day, but it's, an, it's, not, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not just me. Um, and in and the words, in the words of Martin Luther King, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. So, yeah, well, up. I think you've I think if I quote Captain America and you quote Martin Luther King, I think you've won. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, my, my... I, I, I know where your loyalties lie. I, I know you're a big <laughs> yeah, superhero fan. I'm going to write that down and use it in the next interview. But, <laughs> but it is it is incumbent on all of us uh, and it takes effort and it takes work and it takes to a certain degree it takes bravery to stand up to the you know the normal inconveniences of structural racism and to listen to like you said to listen to um minority groups and to amplify their voices you know people with power are primarily concerned with maintaining that power and that is a problem i think it's important that we actually recognize that if you have power best most moral most useful thing you can do is to redistribute it um that's a better way to end than captain america i think <laughs> well i'm going to end by saying thank you to um Ada rutherford our guest for today and our anti-racist bar brawler extraordinaire very much enjoyed having you here with us today, with me. I don't know why I'm suddenly a plural. Um, and <laughs> it's because we are legion. Yes, we are. We are. We are. We are. We are. And we are going to the polls, baby. Um, Good luck. Yeah. Uh, okay. So to everyone out there, go to BeagleLanded.com. Uh, subscribe. Follow me on Twitter. All that good stuff. Take care. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is in vitae.